Today on Writers Get Animated, it's the currently final part 7 of 7 in our history of the animated Disney canon. Stay tuned. Hey, and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about storytelling, animation, and what happens now. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we're talking about the last part, currently, of our trip through the Disney canon. The Disney New Renaissance, the Disney Enlightenment, everything from Bolt to now what we're watching is now now we're at now now what time is it right now now what's happening now is now <laughs> okay now and slightly into the future and slightly into the future so <laughs> we're looking at this particular period of the disney canon starts with john lassiter coming into the disney fold into the Disney story group to help them find their voices and how they work together and come up with their stories. Um, and now it ends, we think, with Jennifer Lee taking over as the leader of the Disney story group um, once Frozen 2 comes out. So we think that this... This period that we're talking about ends with Frozen 2. It's in development. So, it's happening. It's the residual, like, appendix. And I mean appendix in a good way here. It does things. <laughs> so Meet the Robinsons was the end of the last segment. We started to see a little bit of the influence of John Lasseter saying things like, have characters in your film. And... <laughs> Let's let's make this make sense a little bit. You know, let's make this dangerous for people. And you start to see the influence there. Um, and with the way that Meet the Robinsons ends, Mackenzie, you reminded us of this, that we keep moving forward, opening new doors and trying new things from Walt Disney, which, I mean, works. I mean, we're talking about two things. We're talking about Bolt. And we're talking about Frozen. Yeah. And opening new doors is what Frozen is all about. It's true. I caught that on this second watching. <laughs> it's very, I think, uncharacteristic for a movie, especially a big studio like Disney, to like end a movie with like, we're going to do better from now on. And promise that. Um, I mean, outside of a press release about John Lasseter, I said it. Um, but... Mm. <laughs> But uh, they fulfill that promise of we're going to do better in this, the new Renaissance Enlightenment Reformation, whatever you want to call it. The Church the of Disney, England period. Disney Inquisition, which hasn't happened yet, thankfully. <laughs> that will be really unexpected. It's true. No one expects the Disney Inquisition. So the movies in this period include Bolt in 2008, the Princess and the Frog in 2009, Tangled, 2010, Winnie the Pooh, 2011. Yes, there was a Winnie the Pooh movie. <laughs> Wreck-It Ralph in 2012, 
Frozen in 2013, Big Hero 6 in 2014, Zootopia 2016, Moana 2016, Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet this year later, and Frozen 2 next year. <laughs> It'll be included in this in this period. We're calling it. Bam. <laughs> that may be the bookend. Bolt to Frozen 2. And in a lot of ways, I think that Frozen is the Disney film, <clears throat> excuse me, that crystallizes what this period is about. Yeah. Uh, both metaphorically and literally in the plot of the movie. Uh, it's about subverting expectations and doing interesting things with interesting characters. And, I don't know, surprising so many people it becomes a worldwide hit? I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think what it starts with Bolt is that and we'll get into it as we look at Bolt, is that it's not so much about the plot and quirkiness and trying to do specific things. It's character. Mm -hmm. That character defines story, which then defines the plot. So it all begins from strong characters who make strong choices because of their characters, which push the plot forward. Also at this time, you have some other things happening at Pixar, um, some still great movies, maybe not as um, cohesively memorable as like the early Pixar phase. You have Up, Toy Story 3, Brave, Inside Out, Finding Dory, Coco, Incredibles 2, all that good stuff. And Disney at this time kind of has like its own different compartments of things happening and firing on all cylinders. <laughs> so you have the Disney animated studio group you have Pixar doing their thing. You also now have Marvel. Yeah, throw it back to 2008. That's how young this is. We're just hitting Marvel now on our history of the Disney animated canon. <laughs> you also have Star Wars now. In this period, they buy Star Wars. Uh, you have the, I'm using air quotes, live action remakes. Um, Jungle Book, Maleficent, Cinderella, um, all that stuff. And it gets some... Pretty good historical dramas on a Disney theme happening, too, with Christopher Robin and Saving Mr. Banks. Cohesively, yeah. outside of animation, Disney feels like it knows what it's doing in, like, five different areas simultaneously now. <laughs> which also includes the Muppets, which we didn't list here. Oh, my here, God, so yes, and the Muppets. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's this period of reinvention and they're not just reinventing reinventing disney animation they're reinventing you know what superhero movies can be they're reinventing what a star wars movie is they're reinventing star wars on tv they're reinventing just a lot of different things all at the same time and it works they're not stretched too thin i don't know how it works but it's working and part of it i think is putting people the right people in charge and having a, a real clear idea of this is how we do things. I think the creation of the Disney story group is something that's keeping Disney going. Mm -hmm. So it's not silos of movies being created. Um, and the story people within that one story being told it's everyone who's currently working on a Disney film a Disney animated film in the room 
talking about through each other's films, giving feedback and working on it together with one person as sort of the guiding light there. Now it's Jennifer Lee. One could make the argument that before it was John Lasseter in a certain sense, which um, in lots of her interviews, Jennifer Lee has talked through the amount of influence John Lasseter had over things like specific moments in Frozen. Um, and you could look those up. Um, just, yeah, you could look this up. Uh, but I think, yeah, they're, they're just understanding what it's all about. This is where Disney has yet again reinvented itself and said, this is what Disney is, and this is what a Disney movie can be, while still giving us different worlds completely each time. So do they the keep moving of, forward? Do they keep opening like they, doors and trying new things? I feel like they do. I mean, if you look at if if you look at something like The Princess and the Frog, which reinvents the princess story and gives us an African American princess and reinvents you know, it makes the princess a frog for most of the film. Like there's like no they wouldn't have had the guts to do that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this movie's about frogs. Two frogs hanging out. <laughs> um, Two African-American frogs. Right. You can't tell because uh, they're frogs. <laughs> I, I'm agreeing with you and also disagreeing with you. I think it's, it's positive they never would have done this to princess before, but also, like, was this the right princess choice for that? Oh, I, I completely <laughs> understand. <laughs> but they're, they're trying something new and different. I mean, they did a comic book movie and with Big Hero 6, which paid off really well. Um, and then to go from Big Hero 6 to Zootopia, then back to Moana, which is another princess movie, reinventing the princess yet again. It's just really interesting how they keep just, I don't want to say fine-tuning things, but they keep reinventing and finding new ways to tell the story. And that's, I think that's the defining factor of this is beginning with character and finding new ways to surprise us. So let's start with the first big surprise. Bolt. And (laughs) Bolt. This is a massive surprise, I think. Yeah, I agree. I probably, I think I'd written, not like written Disney off permanently, but it's kind of like off Disney. Um, for, do you ever really get off Disney though? I know you don't. I did. <clears throat> I was off Disney for a period. I don't know when it started. Probably. I don't even know what the last one I saw was. I think I saw Chicken Little and was like, mm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and then probably saw Bolt. I think it caught it like on Netflix or something around 2011 and was like, oh, this is really good. No one talks about this movie, and it's a really good movie. Yes. No one talks about Bolt because it flew under the radar in a lot of ways. Underrated um, gem. Everyone, it's back on Netflix like as of this month, so please go watch Bolt. Yes, do yourself a favor and watch Bolt. Um, it originally was going to be a film called American Dog. Um, directed by Chris Sanders, who was the director of Lilo and Stitch, which I was excited about. 
you get Lilo and Stitch, you know, Chris Sanders in there who created a really quirky and charming sister story that you were surprised to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and you end up with this movie about a dog named Henry who is a little bit more like Snoopy who can talk because he stands on two legs and he's not so much a dog in the sense that Bolt is. So he stands, he walks around. They have, um, if you look it up online, they have some test footage and some, what is it, um, con- concept artwork where they show him playing poker and he's like a spy, like a James Bond spy and all these different kinds of things. Um, he's a movie star and he finds himself stranded in the Nevada desert. Um, and he has to go through the real world and he meets a giant radioactive rabbit. And there's a cat with one eye um, who has a skull and crossbones on an eye patch. Um, who's really adorable, like super Chris Sanders round and adorable. If you find that cat, um, I believe he brought the cat back in a web comic called Kiskaloo. I believe that's what it's called. If you want to see the cat with the eye patch, okay, the skull and crossbones. <clears throat> but that's that's what it was. It's really quirky um, and strange, very strange, but seemed fun. It sounds a lot like um, the Robinsons from your description. Yeah, it's a lot of things so, going a lot of directions. So when John, John Lasseter came in at the beginning of the production, so not a lot of the movie had been made, it was still in the planning phases, he called the film too quirky for its own good, and Chris Sanders was removed as the director. And then it got reinvented into what it is today. So this is the f- second reinvention, but one that's a little bit more thorough in its reinvention. It's not so much a, we have to retool it. It's let's scrap it and let's go back to the core and let's pull something out and make something from that core. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the core, before we get to the radioactive rabbit, um, (laughs) it sounds like a lot of that has survived that and like it still works. I feel like the movie, it's just a couple things in the opening that I really like and are different it's immediately especially going from meet the robinsons to bolt um yes it's a big surprise i think immediately as soon as the film opens the animation is just so much better and not just because of technology i think because of what they allow the animators to do which is probably to study puppies and see how they move and figure out how to do that because <laughs> the opening is just bolt as a puppy having puppyisms as he's like moving and his claws skidding on linoleum, his little legs wiggling with his tail as he wags his tail. And this is like a realism, I think, not seen in a Disney computer anime movie until this point. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, and because what it has to sell you on immediately is that first and foremost, Bolt is a dog. Like, that's that's the premise. Bolt is, at heart, the purest dog. And when you think about dog, you think about loves the owners beyond anything else, will do anything to protect their owner, um, but playful and lovable and huggable. 
And you take that to the nth degree <laughs> with the smash cut from Bolt as a puppy and his owner, um, Penny, coming in, like his future owner coming in, the young girl coming in and saying, oh, and that relationship starting. Yeah. And what was your observation? Well, it could... That that opening scene of him as a puppy could conceivably still be part of the story where it shifts to in the future with Bolt as an adult, um, as like the super powered dog helping Penny escape from the Calico Man or whatever his name is, um, <laughs> and the father being a super scientist who's kidnapped. And it's like the superhero movie, and you're going, okay, this is like a Meet the Robinson style plot. Got it. Okay, there's a lot of things going on. It's quirky. Great. And then after a good chunk of movie like that, it stops and you realize it's a movie set. And I had to pause the movie to see where we're And that's about 10% of the movie up until this point is spent in a different movie, understanding the world and the world building. And I, I was, it, it is a shock because you think that that's the movie you're seeing. Mm-hmm. You think that the movie you're seeing is about them taking this dog and transforming him. And it's so like, they must have watched all the Michael Bay canon (laughs) to prepare for this. They got it down to the green coloration, you know, the, the color, (laughs) the color correction on it. They got it to the way that they show certain things, the lighting on it, on the scenes, like, be careful, Betty. And then it it cuts to the opening credits, like Walt Disney Animation Studios presents. You know, they get they got it all together. They got it exactly right. They they were I, I sometimes think the best parodies are the ones that lean into it so mm-hmm. so much that it could serve as a legitimate action movie. Like there's only a few moments that it winks at you in that opening sequence. Um, one of them is where Bolt is jumping over a helicopter and another missile comes and blasts and blows up the helicopter. And it shows it from about four different angles. Yes. And the final angle is just so far back that you see a paper cup fall. <laughs> it's just, it's just that it's like, Okay, we, we we recognize that this is ludicrous, and there's one wink. Um, but the rest of it, uh, during this whole action movie, I was looking at, at Jack, my now six-year-old son, as he's watching this. And usually, if things are stressful, he he gets nervous for characters. And he, instead of walking away from things, he was riveted watching this, which goes to show two things about action movies. One, nobody's in any real danger (laughs) because (laughs) um, even a six-year-old could tell that nothing bad is going to happen to these characters. And two, you don't have time to worry about the characters because everything is happening so fast. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter. You could have had anybody, (laughs) you know, put into that. It's generic action movie and... Even a six-year-old can see that nothing bad is going to happen. Yeah. So right away in Bolt as a movie, we learn two things. One, 
the animation is much better. They paid much more attention to how to make things look real and realistic. <laughs> and two, this is not the movie you expected it to be. Right. And I think they immediately turn around with like the whoever the director is played by is magnificent. Um, you get Mindy from the network shows up and it feels like this Disney meta commentary because this movie that you thought you're seeing feels so much like the last few movies they've put out. And then Mindy from the network just says 18 to 35 year olds don't like happy. This is too happy and too easy. Basically saying exactly what you're saying. The characters are in no danger. Also, are they characters? <laughs> so she tells you, like the movie comes out and says, like, here's a character saying this is not the movie you're going to see. And we're going to do something different. We have to do something <laughs> different. <laughs> and what's interesting uh, that they do with this is it's just the theme about it is just it's all about fantasy and reality mm. right away that's what this film is about we have a dog whose reality is a lie but he believes it so wholeheartedly that they get the best performance from the dog bolt by him believing that the reality is that there is a green-eyed man and penny is in danger so he they it's for him it's basically the truman show starring a dog in an action movie like that's that's what we get um and it's so well done that you don't second guess it at all <laughs> yeah it's it's a really high suspension of disbelief but you're like cool i'm rolling with it it's so preposterous i'm just gonna say yes <laughs> um because the other characters believe it so wholeheartedly the director the producers they even have the boom mic guy like everyone's watching these dailies like everyone's in the room watching this like is that a boom mic <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's truly amazing um but it's not just that Bolt lives in a fantasy world. It's that everyone else has a fantasy life that is completely lying. Hmm. So every every other main character, and the other one really is Mittens, um, who we'll get to in just a second. But she's she's living a fantasy as well. She's living a lie. Um, and deliberately that she knows she's living whereas bolt is living a lie he doesn't know that he's living mm -hmm. and i just think it's great to have a disney movie that can play with nuance like that um, and play with characters in a really adult way yet still have plenty for a six-year-old to laugh at yeah i mean i think rhino is like right in the middle of those two but the Venn diagram of that with plenty of a six-year-old to laugh at. Rhino, of exactly. course, being the name of a hamster um, who both, I think, knows and doesn't know that it's all a fantasy. Well, here's the thing. It's like he he's so enamored with the character of Bolt and thinks that it's real, but also knows that the magic box tells lies but he's also into cosplay. Like he's really into everything. Oh, I love Rhino. Uh, Rhino is one of the best characters. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Um, but can we talk a little bit about where things go with this film? 
So we have Bolt, who um, they decide to follow Mindy from the network's um, idea to make things dark and let the green-eyed man win. And so Penny is not saved at the end. She flies away. She's taken away. And now Bolt, <laughs> being egged on by the actor cats, which I think those those cats are hilarious. Oh, so wonderful. Like, just go out of their way to antagonize this dog who thinks everything is real. Um, he gets out, he escapes, and he ends up being accidentally shipped to New York. Like you do. <laughs> like you From do. LA to New York. You have to get him out of his comfort zone and get him all the way in a different time zone altogether and give him something, give him a journey to make in a lot of different ways. So they sent him all the way to New York. And there, um, he winds up getting paired with Mittens, whom I love. Yeah. Mittens. Can you talk a little bit about Mittens? Mittens, Mittens is. is just like this bitter cat living in the streets of New York. Like you said, living this lie of like bossing around these pigeons who decide to like stick it to her by bringing this dog who's convinced he's a superhero to fight off Mittens. And because Mittens is a cat, Bolt thinks, of course, all cats know the calico green-eyed man. Um, <laughs> so kidnaps Mittens to take, to be, to go find the green-eyed man. And so Mittens is taking him like cross country, Milo at Otis, but with a superhero dog kind of way. <laughs> It is very, you know, <laughs> the incredible journey, homeward bound, Milo and Otis. It's very much in that vein of animals lost heading back to their owners. But one of them thinks that he's a superhero. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> That's like you do. Um, but all of it, I, I just love the reasons that his powers don't work. You know, maybe it's the styrofoam peanuts that you know, are some kind of kryptonite to him, not to bring up the K word, but um, <laughs> after the last episode or a couple episodes ago, I guess. Um, but I, I, I also think that it's interesting how she has to play along in order to keep herself safe in the relationship. Um, so that way she can keep going. Uh, there's a moment when they're trying to jump on a train. I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but they're trying to jump on a train and he gets stuck and he's trying to, she's trying to save him and everything's trying to get done. And that is actually a time when Jack, my son started getting nervous about things because it felt like that the characters were actually in danger. And they are. And the movie set up, you at this point know that he's a real dog with real dog limitations. And so then to put in this movie, like this real dog is going to jump on a moving train from a bridge. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. what What's going to happen? How's this dog going to do this? This doesn't feel right for the story. And sure enough, it doesn't feel right for the story. But it is because the dog can't do it. <laughs> he fails. Yes. And he fails multiple times. 
And it, it's just so amazing. The, the one time that you see him start to learn how to be a dog again, it's one of the best montages in the film, which has a couple of them, but Mittens is trying, they end up at a, at a campsite and they're so hungry, <laughs> which cracks me up because his, um, his, his stomach starts growling and he's like, what happened? What have you done to me? <laughs> so good. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> um, and she teaches him how to beg how to go up to people and look like a cute puppy and have people give him food. So good. It's like, like move your head, move your, move your ears, put your ears down, cock your head. Now look up. Bigger eyes. A little bit more. Yeah. Uh, and she gets it just right. Um, and he goes out and then he starts living it and starts being cute. And, and then other dogs want to play with him and he's not sure what to do. And she's like, get down and play like this is what you do this is how you do it this is what he's expecting which goes it it's just so real to be like no you are a dog be a dog and to have this cat teaching this dog about what it is to be a dog it's like no it's the best thing you know you get all the great things and in that becoming this in a way this surrogate owner taking over the human place for this dog mm -hmm. and thinking that they can be the family together is a really unexpected place for it to go. Well, I love that part of the montage after that. Cause I think that this is the perfect way to do montage. It's not just a way to get from like scene C to scene H in a movie. Cause you don't know what to put in the middle. It's one to show the passage of time. Everyone can do that montage is great, but this one doesn't show just the passage of time, but how that character builds over time. Mm. Like you're talking about, it establishes a new status quo for the characters. And while Bolt is still trying to get cross country and find his person, Mittens has grown accustomed to his face uh, <laughs> and wants to be a family with this dog. So when they get to Vegas and, and says, we can stay here, this is perfect. There's free food everywhere. You believe it. We've gotten to that point with Mittens through the montage. It's a new character hitch with montage. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of the... I think Disney has done this a lot. There's a moment like that in Wreck-It Ralph. There's a moment like that in Tangled. Um, there's a moment even like that a little bit in... Which is it? Um... I'm trying to think of where else it is. Uh, Princess and the Frog, where they decide, no, this status quo is, let's let's live here in this. Let's be here in this. And in some cases, like Princess and the Frog, they accept it. They say, yep, we're going to be frogs. Let's forget it. Let's just be frogs. And we'll get married as frogs. Um, and that, this is fine. Um, and then Wreck-It Ralph, where they say, hey, this is the way it is. And then Ralph betrays it. And it's one of the heartbreaking scenes. So it's either this really uplifting moment or it's a really bad heartbreaking scene where they rip apart and say, no, that was a lie. That's not true. Or I have to do this to protect you in this way. 
And for Bolt, it's the first moment of heartbreak of, no, I'm still going after my human. Yeah, our main character's goal has not changed, but our side characters now have a new view on that. This is the beginning of the Disney renaissance of montages. <laughs> and I'm all for it. Yes. Um, the, the other thing that I would say about Bolt as it gets in, it's... The tr- when it comes out about the truth about Mittens, who lived as a mob boss, and the truth comes out that she has been discarded and abandoned, um, and they declawed her and left her alone. And she's like, well, what did I do? What did, mm-hmm. what did I do to be left alone? Um, she, it's, it's heartbreaking in a way that ultimately you haven't seen since Toy Story 2. Mm-hmm. There's no and answer. Jesse's story. Yeah. It's just like, what did I do? All she knows is that she must have done something wrong to deserve what she got. Um, so she does not have that interaction, that, that um, love of a human. And when she turns her back on Bolt, it's Rhino who comes in and says, you know, are you out of your mind? You know, it's not about humans. It's about what we have with each other. It's about Bolt. Like, stop it. Let's go after Bolt. That's who your family is. It doesn't have to be your relationship with a human. It's your relationship with Bolt. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is a really important distinction to make. It's like, it's not about this specific perfect relationship that you're supposed to have. It's the one that you do have and don't turn your back on that. You can't turn your back on that relationship that you have. So good. It is just so good. Oh, mittens. She's just so pathetic and wonderful. The, the, and the acting on it, the, the voice acting and that all the, all the physical acting of Mittens. This is where Disney starts acting. Yeah. <laughs> because they actually have characters now. We can act with computers. Look at that. Yes. And it, it just... I don't know. It, it takes a step further when they get to things like Tangled. Because... Uh, this is a slight diversion, but not quite... So Tangled, which was originally called Rapunzel Unbraided, was going to be directed by Glenn Key, um, who we know as one of the animators from the Disney Renaissance, who animated The Beast and animated Aladdin um, and animated Tarzan. And it was going to be his first computer animated thing that he was going to be involved with. And he was going to direct it. And... He said, I don't want to do it unless we can mimic and do things like 2D. I want to be able to do things. And he gave a painting of them, uh, a painting for them to match. If you, they, He said, if you can make this painting believably in 3D, I will do it. Hmm. And incidentally, um, when we talk about Frozen, it's one of the pictures that... It's hanging up. Is hanging up on the wall. 
which which I just love. But it's it's this idea of no, let's go back, let's scoop some of our 2D animation understanding and put it in here. Like none of those all of that knowledge and all of that experience is still valid. It's just being done on a different medium. Yeah, you need to figure out a different Let's way to not do lose it. it. Yeah. Right. And I think that's part of this. It's no, no, it's not 2D versus 3D. It's still the same thing. It's acting through a character who is animated. It's a that's what it is. Different hard skill, same soft skill. Yes. For those of you in <laughs> Thank business. You. <laughs> the business of being talented. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think the last thing I want to say about Bolt is how much I love the ending. Because I feel like it would be mm. a cheat at the end if like things magically worked out through like Bolt's efforts. Yes. And ultimately what it is, is he gets there. There's a brilliant construction of like the train dog being a coward and Penny being stuck in a burning building. It's like the perfect setup in the superhero vein. And Bolt gets there, and Bolt can't rescue Penny. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And it's ultimately just about him, like, being there and being with Penny and accepting, like, I'm with my person, and we're probably both going to die. Uh, but that's what being a dog is, not what being a pretend hero is. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love it. It's such a downer. Like, obviously, things turn out okay. Um, through other, like, story-driven reasons that are reasonable, and I like... Um, but that moment is so perfect. Yes. Ah. And, and then it all turns out good and you have your 2d animation during the credits and you're fine with that. In conclusion, and then you, go see Bolt. <laughs> and then you have Miley Cyrus and John Travolta singing a duet, which is what you wanted the whole movie anyway. Right. Didn't know you wanted, but you didn't know you wanted, but it's, you got it anyway. You got it anyway. Like it doesn't work for them to sing anywhere else in this movie. So let's give them an end credit song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just works. I don't know why, but that I thought I lost you. I don't know why. I just. Uh... I mean, Miley sings. John has sung in Hairspray. And in Greece. And in Greece. Okay, fine. Hairspray. I don't know. He may have done something else. I'm not even sure if John Travolta has ever been in a musical. Uh, should we move on to Frozen now that we, we talked about Bolt? Oh, it's just... Yeah, we should move on to the uh, princess elephant in the room. Uh, Frozen, which we haven't talked about Frozen. much on this podcast before ever, but is really like... Uh, like the best uh, is it the best-selling disney movie of all time it is okay i'm not surprised it by is. that and i bet frozen 2 is gonna blow everything out of the water it's and it's hard to when i was watching it again um and it's been a couple years since i've watched it not as many as other disney movies but it's been a couple years um it was very hard to separate it from what it's become mm-hmm you know, in a lot of ways, it's become catchphrases, it's become jokes, um, it's become easy punchlines. That are used um, in other future Disney movies. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt has a couple of Frozen jokes here and there. 
Like my friend Elsa said, let it go. It's a season on Once Upon a Story or Time or whatever that show is. One, yeah, Once Upon a Time. Yeah, it's just it's just become this huge thing. And if you strip all of the things away of what it's become, it was nice to go back to it and watch it as if I hadn't seen it before and remembering what it was like to be in the theater seeing it for the very first time without the memes, without the jokes, without knowing the, all the songs and just looking at what it was in front of you when you're getting it the first time and actually being surprised by it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that my experience seeing it the first time may have been different than yours reading your notes, but, uh, I mean, mine uh, probably wasn't too different. Um, well, Bolt turned me back on to Disney. I kind of like was playing catch up for a while. So I didn't see Frozen when it came out. Um, I saw after it came out and after it became a thing. Um, it was mm. probably quite a while afterward, actually. Um, and so by the first time I saw it, it already had all this expectation of pop culture. And I didn't care for it too much. Hmm. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It just kind of felt like it was underwhelming for what was built up to me. And it felt like I knew everything was going to happen. Hmm. So for this episode of our podcast, I watched it a second time. Now it's been a few years. Um, and I should just take my playwriting professor's advice um, in every opportunity, which is to do read the text twice. <laughs> should just do that more often and in every case. Um, so, yeah, I've seen Frozen 2. Well, not Frozen 2. I've seen Frozen two times now. <laughs> <laughs> and on this viewing, I can see what it does and the structure it uses to do that. And I really respect how it accomplishes those goals and tells the story. Um, I still have some issues, but they're more personal and academically, I can value Frozen and really lift it up as an example of good storytelling. Yes. And that's the thing about Frozen is just how much, and there's this great episode of script notes with um I, I i wish i could say friend of the podcast john august <laughs> and craig mason but i can't say that but people we admire very much john august and craig mason we'll put it there um where they had jennifer lee and aileen brosh mckenna who went on to create crazy ex-girlfriend um they had them on to discuss frozen beat by beat almost so going through the whole thing and we will have a link in our show notes to the transcript from that episode so you can read through it and see some of the things and and find out some of the influence and the way the story changed but the the idea of the snow queen was actually way back in 1937 disney had been trying to make this movie prior to seven Seven Dwarfs? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Or after Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Um, right before it. Right before they were thinking about their next thing. Um, and I think because of money, they were going to make it a co-production with um, Samuel Goldwyn. Where they, they would do the live action stuff about Hans Christian Andersen. And Disney would animate you know, all of the stories that would be in there. So Little Mermaid and Little Match Girl and... Um, the Snow Queen and Steadfast Tin Soldier, um, all future Disney movies <laughs> that, that ended up coming out. Steadfast um, Tin Soldier. That's in um, Fantasia 2000. Oh, okay. There's a short there. It's with Shostakovich music. 
It's pretty interesting. Evil Jack in the Box. Mm. Um, but they couldn't get get it done. They couldn't find a way to make it work. And then they started doing, you know, wartime propaganda in the 40s, and then they shelved it. And it wasn't until Frozen that they started coming up again. So since 1942, this has been essentially locked away in the Disney vault as, wouldn't it be a good idea to do the Snow Queen and finally having it as, we did the Snow Queen and we're doing a sequel. How interesting that our seven-part history of the Disney canon begins with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And we're ending with a movie that's been around as an idea as long or as longer than Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It's almost as if we had a circular intention for telling the story. And it's the seventh episode of it. <laughs> Walt Disney and the Seven Eras. <laughs> okay, new, new episode title. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's, let's talk a little bit about Frozen. I mean, I think many of our listeners may know the story of Frozen as it is now. Or at least um, let it go. Or at least they know the song Let It Go. Yes. Um, we, we end up with the story of two sisters and their relationship. That's what it boils down to. Two sisters and their relationship and how it's changed by events that happen to them throughout the course of the film. Like, that's what it boils down to. Um, and Jennifer Lee was talking about the story issues that they were having because originally be, to follow the Snow Queen, Elsa was evil and she was older and they weren't related hmm. at all. <laughs> Zero relation. Um, but they knew that they wanted to reinvent one specific thing, which is an act of true love melts a frozen heart. They knew that when you hear true love in a Disney movie, that means one thing. The prince. The prince. That's it. That's all it means. And they knew that they wanted to change that and play with that. And that's about all they knew, that it would be in a redemption of this main character who was evil. And it wasn't until Jennifer Lee really took a look at what was going on, she said, this is Anna's journey, and this is Elsa's journey. And then they were like, oh, that's what the movie is. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until you, sometimes you have to just break it down. And let the story be what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And, it's and trying just to remove write itself. everything else. Right. And, and it, when you take it back to Anna and Elsa, and you ignore everything else. Everything else? It's, oh, nice. <laughs> I was going to say, when you take everything else and let it go. Uh, also good. Also good. <laughs> you, you end up with um, the heart of the story. Yeah, actually, I... So, as I was rewatching it, I was trying to, like figure out the the three-act structure of it. And basically, the three-act structure that I came up with is just Anna and Elsa and hardly any mention of any other characters. Mm-hmm. And yes, Hans and Kristoff... Or not Kristoff. Yes, Kristoff. 
Sven is the reindeer. Hans, Kristoff, Sven, and Olaf all add things and are important to this movie, um, but they're not the core story. They just add more to the core story. Mm-hmm. They help the characters get to where they need to be for the next moment between the sisters. Yeah, exactly. That's that's all Kristoff does, mm-hmm. is help Anna get to Elsa so they can have their next moment together and their relationship can take the next step. That's totally fine. And I, I'm there for it. I'm there for it. Um, the The opening of the film throws me off a little bit. I forgot how it started. <laughs> because I always, because of Anna and Elsa being so central to it, I always forgot that it starts with fr- the Frozen Heart song. Yeah. I I can't even remember what it's called. And I can't remember most of the lyrics because of the way it's sung. But the ice people, well, not the ice people, but the, the ice. Harvesters? Cutters? What are they? Harvest? Yeah, yeah. The ice harvesters. They're cutting the ice and they're singing basically a sea shanty. Yeah, it's very, for me, it felt a lot like the beginning of The Little Mermaid. Oh, look, another throwback to another episode about the Disney animated canon. Um, <laughs> it's very sea shanty-y. Um, it's kind of a forgettable song, honestly, that's world building. Um, but what this one does better is it's a thesis statement about the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. I wrote down a bunch of lyrics. Ice is powerful. Ice is beautiful. But you must control it. It's stronger than ten men. If you split right. the ice apart, the ice beware beam, the frozen know, heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they they do they do set that up thematically, but you don't really know that they're doing that. Yeah, and that's that's okay. And if you have trouble hearing, um, like guttural throat singing, like you might not understand it at all. It's basically the roundabouts from Dumbo. <laughs> but but ice. Yeah. Um like I have no idea what they're saying in that song most of the time. And that is one of the things that I probably still have a little bit of an issue with, but um definitely first time I saw this movie, I was like, what is this scene? Why is this happening? And on second view, it's like, oh, I see why this is happening. Great. You're telling me what the story mm-hmm. is. Cool. <laughs> and then we get really nice intro to the two characters, um, Anna and Elsa, which is like the cutest little girls in Disney moviedom. It's so perfect. The sky's awake, so I am awake. Mm-hmm. It's like, just go back to bed, yeah. Anna. <laughs> and, we, we, and we know that these are not going to be the normal princesses that we get. I mean... Well, I think we we think right away that Elsa's going to be the normal princess. She's like composed. She's in her room. She's lying down and behaving like a normal human. Um, <laughs> and then the first introduction to Anna is just her little eyes popping up energetically from behind the bed. And you know, that's not a normal Disney princess. No. And then they go to play and realize, oh, Elsa has magic powers. She's not a normal Disney princess. <laughs> In either way, but Anna wants to be. Mm-hmm. Anna wants to have things be normal and is not sure why things aren't. However, as a kid, she celebrates 
her sister's difference. They celebrate the powers. They love the powers. Like, let do you want to build a snowman? Like the way she delivers that line, the first time you hear it, before it's become a thing, you know, do you want to build a snowman? And then they go off and do it. You know, do the magic, do the magic. And we see just how powerful Elsa's magic is as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then everything, they, the accident happens. The big accident happens. And then you have Maurice LaMarche charge in as the father. Like, what have you done? Yeah, it's... They're parents that, like, I want to love, but ultimately, like, have a hard time loving as characters. Listen, as a parent, you do many wrong things in your parenting. (laughs) But my gosh, these parents, this, I mean, you can tell he thinks he's being caring. Yeah. And then he teaches her that rhyme of conceal, don't feel... (laughs) Like, like, wow, dad, that's... <laughs> the trolls, like, say, like, oh, yeah, she just has to learn to control her power. It's fine. So the dad's obvious, like, jump to conclusions. I have to control her power. <laughs> Which is interesting. They did a, um, <laughs> um, how it should have ended. And I'll, I'll probably put a link to it in our show notes. But he's like, all right, so control and fear and the dad's like okay so we're gonna lock her in a room and keep make sure no one's he's like no why would you do that and it's like and we'll do this it's like no you're terrible parents stop and then essentially the trolls take her elsa to live with um charles xavier and <laughs> get her to somebody who could help her actually control her powers yeah. instead of these parents are like yes we'll lock her in a room and make sure she never talks to anyone ever again it's like no i didn't say that you're terrible people uh-huh. So, <laughs> the real villain of the movie is the father. The real villain is caring too much. <laughs> well, there's two <laughs> there's two villains. There's the dad who cares too much and tries to control everything. And then there's somebody who doesn't care at all. And that's... Mm. Let's walk the middle ground where we care so much we listen to the other person. That's the moral. <laughs> that's the moral of the story. Listen to each other and have a real relationship. Mm-hmm. In the end, that's what it is, right? Um, also, consent. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I wrote that <laughs> note down. The, uh, uh, I can't find it. But essentially, when Kristoff and Anna are hanging out together, it's at the very end. It's at the very end. And they say something like, I want to kiss you. Can I kiss you? What? He asks for <laughs> consent. That's all that a princess really needs to learn. <laughs> Look for the guy who asks if he can kiss you. So, <laughs> I know that you are not one for musicals, that you're not like the biggest musical fan in the world. But um, this is, if we look at the Disney, uh, the Disney films that come before this, in this era, Bolt, not a musical. Mm-hmm. Those are, they're singing at the end. <laughs> um, Princess and the Frog, musical. Tangled, somewhat a musical. Has some music. Winnie the Pooh has music. Wreck-It Ralph, 
not a musical, but cool songs like Sugar Rush theme song. That's a really cool song. Um, and then we get to Frozen, which is a musical. And then we end up with two films, Big Hero 6 and Zootopia, that are not. So they're playing fast and loose with it, but they went whole hog with this musical stuff. Yeah. Um, and the testing ground for the, the songwriters in this, who are also the writers of Avenue Q, um, was they wrote the songs for Winnie the Pooh in 2011. Mm. So that was a good testing ground to see like how they would work in the Disney fold. And then they brought them in here. Can you write a not Avenue Q song? Yes? Okay, great. Still <laughs> great. just as clever. Hey, <laughs> do you want to write some stuff here? So what did you think about the music and what, what do you think the music adds to this that we haven't seen since the Disney Renaissance, I feel? Well, I do feel like you got to set the record straight. I do have a problem with musicals being like stage musicals because oftentimes it feels to me like the music just brings it to a grinding halt. We're going to have a dance number and sing some emotions. Great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas a movie musical, you could still have a montage happen at the same time as the music. So you're still advancing the story plot-wise and character-wise, not just one or the other. So okay. generally, I'm okay with movie musicals. I don't like... I didn't go home after watching this and then download the soundtrack from Apple Music and just have it on repeat in my car. No, I didn't. Some of us may have. That's okay. I'm not saying it's bad. It's generally really good music that I really like, except the Olaf Summer song. Uh, I will talk about that. <laughs> but there, so the opening song tells you the story. Um, it establishes everything that's going to happen in this movie. It's the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the... I can't think of the academic paper word that I'm looking for. Um, hmm. But it, it does that. It's the opening. Um, Let It Go is iconic. And Elsa running across the lake and it freezing as she runs is an iconic moment of Disney history. And I had to rewatch that to really appreciate it because it's in all the trailers. But you watch her run to the lake, stop, not know how strong her powers are, and wonder, can she walk on water? And then figures out how to escape. Mm -hmm. And that really is a great moment. And that sets off the entire plot, not just the character moments of the movie, with the harbor freezing over, all the bad guys getting stuck there with them, um, and causing the problems for the kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect moment. It's wonderful. Um, and love is an open door, I think, is the, the, the emotional core of the movie. Mm -hmm. Doors... It originally was mirrors, um, was the guiding metaphor. Of but now, love is an open mirror. <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> but now, um, love is an open door, and doors being open is the thematic metaphor of this whole thing. Open the gates, mm -hmm. you know, for the first time in forever, the gates are actually open. We're going to let people in. We're not going to hide. Um, we're not going to hide from each other. Um, that scene with Anna and Elsa together, like, oh, hey. And Elsa says, hey. And I was like, oh, what, me? Like, you're talking to, we're having a conversation? Like, that's funny and also, like, awful. Sad. That's, that's, like, sad and heartbreaking. Like, oh, wait, me? You're talking to me? 
But I also, I also feel like the movie, while the song is the emotional core, the final moral isn't that love is an open door. It's like, I don't know how to articulate it, but it changes. I don't know if there's a clever twist on the open door metaphor. It's when Olaf says true love is someone else putting their own needs above your own. Mm-hmm. Which in her mind is what Elsa was doing at the beginning by keeping her door closed and not talking to Anna. Right. It's keeping a relationship. Yeah. Because I think what Anna learns is that an open door is also a room you can walk into and then get locked in by a prince trying to kill you. (laughs) So, yeah, if we look at doors in the film, like, love is an open door, which um, my wife hated the first time because it plays the role so well. It's, this is this song. Mm -hmm. This is the song where these two characters fall in love. And it's so hokey. Oh, it's so wrong. (laughs) Um, But once you see the end, it becomes so delightful Mm -hmm. to know that, oh, he's just playing this. Anna is just so lonely, and he is able to play this role so well. Yeah. I want to talk about Hans, but I don't get too far off music because we still have to complain about the Olaf summer song. Right. So uh, it, it's just it's just a beautiful song. I love that one so much. And it was even great to watch. There's a good video, and we'll put it in the show notes, of um, Kristen Bell and Santino Fontana um, actually singing it live. <laughs> and just to see him performing it, and it's just... I, I just enjoy singing, seeing him sing. His performances just, you see the charm and the smarm at the same time. Charm it's like and a, smarm. Wow. Oh, it's so good. It's perfect. <laughs> so tell me about summer. In summer, Olaf's song. It's the one time when one of the main characters isn't singing, it's the side character song. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, if we link this back to other things, it's like the washing up song in The Seven Dwarfs, where it's like, let's do some funny things with these dwarfs washing. Yep. Um, or it could be equated a little bit to Hakuna Matata, where we learn about the side characters a little bit. Uh, hang on, I'm getting there. <laughs> so it's these side characters songs that you end up with. Um, Friend Like Me the side character gets a really awesome, fun song with a lot of jokes and a lot of funny visuals. Here's the difference. In the Disney Renaissance, when you do get something like Friend Like Me or Hakuna Matata, it's characters having influence over the main character in some way. And driving the story forward. Driving the story forward. It's the genie showing off what he can do. It's the um it's timon and pumbaa showing look forget about the past forget it it's gone just don't even care about it let's move on with our lives hey let's be happy so it's that in summer would work and this is a big if um if olaf was not willing to take them to find Elsa. Hmm. 
And they had to promise they, him summer. And they promised him summer. So if it started off as, you know, like, listen, this is, you have to help us bring back summer. It's like, why would I do that? I don't even know what summer is. What is summer? And they start to describe, it's like, if, if it starts with Anna singing, bees will buzz, you know, kids will blow dandelion fuzz. And then, and Kristoff could sing and you'll be doing whatever snow does in summer, you know, cause he knows the whole thing. And then, um, winter is nice when we want to cuddle, you know, put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. Like that could be mm-hmm. his transformation to, yes, I do want to help bring. And then at the end, let's bring back summer. Like if that was the course of the song, I like it. And then, and then Christoph's like, someone's got to tell him, you know, <laughs> then you don't change. You don't even have to change the lyrics. You just change a little bit before it to say, no, we have to convince this snowman to help us bring back summer. And then feeling really bad about helping a snowman bring back summer. Yeah. Like there's, there's a character thing happening. Yeah. And still let Josh Gad sing, you know, in summer at the very end, you know, still keep that because that's awesome. But there has to be a reason. Otherwise it's just an aside for no other reason. I mean, Yes, it's funny and let us there's tons of visual humor in it. Um but it would just be that much better if there was a little bit more character and plot stuff in it. Yeah. I agree. This is the only moment I think in this movie that really it comes to a halt. It's trash in the camp all over again. Yeah, trash in the camp. Man, this is just this episode. You have to really listen to the previous six parts to really get anything about what we're talking about. We fit Snow White. <laughs> we fit wartime propaganda. We fit Little Mermaid and Trash in the Camp. We've hit Meet the Robinsons. What have we missed? We didn't get like the middle. Um, the Three Caballeros era. No, the one after that, the Cinderella and. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the new classics. Yeah, computer animation is I bet how animators felt about Xerox at the time. That's why Glenn Keane wanted them to duplicate the emotions of that painting. There, we got it. There's all six previous parts referenced in this episode. <laughs> so, um, and I just want to say one thing about Let It Go. It's watch, I, when they, when she starts building the castle, I still get goosebumps every time. There's something about that music winding up during the bridge. It just it just makes me so happy. And you just hear the building and everything. It's like when Beauty and the Beast, they're dancing with the chandelier, but the whole thing is that. Yeah. But it's like all of that. It's, it's a really good song and it's a really good sequence. And there's a reason it's as well known or remembered as it is. Um, it's not like, I'm trying to think of a, Bad popular song example from a movie. Mm. Uh, uh. Um, it's not like um, not any song from La La Land, but like a song from La La Land. But uh, stop. But us. Song from La La Land. Yeah, just like, I can't think of, like, which song I want to reference, but it'd be, like, one of them. Um, 
maybe City of Stars. It's a good song and everyone sings it, but like it doesn't do anything for that movie. Um, or Let It Go, I'm like, cool, you can sing it. I'm kind of sick of hearing it, but I respect your love of this because you love good storytelling. <laughs> All right, I want to talk about Hans. Okay, let's talk about Hans. I love this argument because um, I know the moment that everyone argues and I could argue it back. But go ahead. No, I think my second watching, I think, helped. Because, yes, I think my, my first viewing impression is probably what you want to argue against. Exactly. And it's it feels like Hans is being too honest. And it's like, what does Hans want? And then he has a sudden out-of-the-blue like reversal, and suddenly he's a bad guy. Um, and you think back to like the moments that we see Hans when no one's around. He's in the water, under the boat, smiling as Anna walks away, and no one can see him. And he saves Elsa from being shot. Um, and so I had to really think about that watching this movie this time to try and understand what it was. And here's what I think the turning point is. But it's really mm -hmm. subtle, so I think it's still tenuous and I wish it was played up. But I think it is there. And I'm arguing against first viewing Mackenzie. Okay. I think the moment of change is when Anna is back in the castle with the frozen heart dying and he's attending to her and then the townspeople say to hans if something happens to anna you are all arendelle has and he realizes in that moment while he's been trying to save the princesses so he can marry one of them and become the king they already respect him as king they can both die he's good hmm he doesn't have to go through marrying them to become king yeah. he can just King. He's already the regent. They're against Elsa already. They don't want her. Cool. He's going to kill her anyway. Um, or he can kill her instead of just like leaving her be alive so that Anna trusts him. And now he can let Anna die because he can be king and not like do something shady down the line. To me, that's the turning point. Do you agree or do you think there's a different? I think that's a really interesting point. Um... Having read your note and then watched the film again, I was like, oh, yeah, I can see that as a point. But I don't think it's a character change. I think it's a plan change. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not a character change. It's a change in yeah. his plan. Because Jennifer Lee has said um, that, quote, Hans is a villain from the minute he hits her, being Anna, with the horse in my mind. And she calls him a sociopath. <laughs> yes. All, all the way through. That he's just the person that he needs to be in every situation, so that way everyone sees him at his best, or at what they expect to be the best. So he's the best boyfriend for Anna, he's the best regent that the kingdom can have, he's the best person in front of Elsa, like he can't not be the best person, as long as there are witnesses. But I think it's all um, with an intent, too. I think he only saves Elsa yes. so that Anna doesn't get mad at him and dump him. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. He has to have Elsa there, so Anna will marry him still. And in some cases, saving Elsa might be what gets Elsa to let him marry Anna. Mm -hmm. On second viewing, I completely agree. On first viewing, I have a lot of issues. Second viewing, I think it tracks. People want to 
talk about the the boat, you know, mm-hmm. the look that he gives. And I'm like, I don't have a problem with that look. It's a it's a red herring look. It makes you think that he's in love with her or like that he's really kind because yes, everyone's like no one's even watching him. I said, you know, you make that look for two different reasons. Like, oh, she's a goofball. Oh, she's, you know, or you can be even saying, wow, this is going to be easier than I realized. Mm -hmm. Like that look can mean a lot of different things. It's what you interpret on it. The first time you watch it, what you put on it is a loving moment. It, But he's a sociopath. So it could be, in the words of Jennifer Lee, he, he's a sociopath. So I have no problem with that moment. That moment to me is just, I see why it's done there and, and people have called it a cheat. And in some ways it does lead you down the wrong path, but it, is not out of character. Yeah. I, I, and that, so the one I really had a problem with, like on first viewing was him saving Elsa. That was, right. that was my moment in the first viewing of like, well, why, why did you even do this? You're just making it harder. Right. Now she's back there and then you're going to kill her. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, Again, I wish it was played up a little bit more, but I also don't want this to be like a well-constructed movie plot where everything falls into place exactly as you predict it's going to. Um, yeah. I like twists. This was a good twist, but the the change of plan moment is small. Mm-hmm. And I do enjoy that this is something that they were working towards. Like everything at the end feels inevitable. The one moment that I have a problem with is the thing that saves them all. Like I'm tracking with everything all the way through the end. And then love thaws and love thaws um, a frozen heart. And then Elsa says, Oh, love. And then suddenly she's able to thaw everything. She has summer powers too. I hope they play that with frozen too. They played it up a little bit in Frozen. Um, I want to say it's fr- what is that one called? The Christmas one from before. Frozen Coca? Fever. Oh no, the other Frozen one. Frozen Fever. Yeah, where Elsa gets sick, which is pretty funny. Mm. But um, but I think it could have started with. I think what throws me off is that realization, like oh that, and then start doing it. If she's hugging Anna. And then they're holding each other and things start to melt. Yeah. And then Elsa pulls back and says, oh, and then she has the realization as it's happening, then she could finish it. But when she steps away and goes, oh, wait, I know how to fix it. I think if she starts feeling it, because the whole movie has tracked that her lack of control on her emotions equals the lack of control on her powers. If she's unable to control her love of her sister at this point, and that's what starts thawing it, it just adds another thematic bump to that. And then she's able to say, you know what? I choose to love my sister, and I choose to be in control of this. And then she powers over it. I agree. And I just want to say, I know it sounds like being really nitpicky about a couple things to make this movie better, 
but we generally think it's really good, really well plotted, really well written. And Jennifer, you're brilliant. And we have more nitpicky things to say about other directors. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for this great film. If you're listening, Uh, Jen. And because the whole thing is so well constructed, we can be nitpicky. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. It's just so well done that you have to find those specific moments to just punch up. It's not like Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice, right? It's, there's too many directions I want to complain. That <laughs> <laughs> you're just you're just frozen. Uh, you can't. Uh, oh, oh, I didn't mean to do that one. No, but this movie's so, like here are the three minor things that I personally would change to put my touch on this movie, but it's still good. As exactly. It is. <laughs> So what we have to say in the end about what we've learned from this era of Disney and what you've learned from this era of Disney of revisiting some of these things and seeing. I, because we started doing this because you said, you know, for a long time you hadn't seen a lot of the Disney canon and you wanted a, a way to look through things. Like, where are we? What have we found out? Uh, I think that, yeah, there's seven distinct storytelling eras. And some of them kind of, not some of them, maybe like two to three of them overlap more because there's a lack of direction, even though they're not continuous. So it's more mm-hmm. like we have like three clear storytelling eras. No, we have four clear storytelling areas and like three that are all the same, but not contiguous. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to go with that. Um, so I think in this modern era, that we're still in, but maybe at the tail end of, there's been a lot of good things that are new in this. Uh, We're all about, not we, I mean, we too, but Disney's all about finding thematic, character-driven issues, Mm -hmm. which is what has made the past good eras of Disney good, Um, and then develop a movie plot around that. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. there's the Snow Queen, but the Frozen wasn't Frozen until they discovered that it was about Anna's journey and Elsa's journey. Cool, we discovered the character journey. Now we're going to redevelop the movie around this to make that work. Yes. And those interesting twists that subvert your expectations in these movies. All of them. I'm trying to think of a movie from the modern era that doesn't have a subversion. I really can't think of one. Um, Even things in Wreck-It Ralph have massive subversions. I haven't seen Winnie the Pooh, so I guess I can't judge that. Actually, it does a little bit. Okay. It has a little bit of subversion, <laughs> but like it's sweet and honey filled. Sweet, so sweet it's not subversion. Like... <laughs> mm, <laughs> subversion. There we go. Um, also, I think in this era of Disney, we have uh, more women and people with their own autonomy, both behind the scenes and in the movies. Mm-hmm. People are people, and a lot of it is fighting against expectations that those characters have thrust upon them. Uh, we're less invested in the love story, though obviously that's part of life and love happens. Which I think is the main conclusion of Frozen. Like, uh, something might develop with Kristoff. We'll see. But that's in the future, yeah. and it's not complete. Yeah. Um, and this era found a way to make computer animation um, stylized and distinctly animated and still blended with other animation styles for narrative effect. It's not just yes. computer animation for the sake of being computer animation. It's a stylized Disney animation that is different from anything else. Absolutely. Well done. Thank you. Are there any morals that I've, I've missed here? I don't, I don't think so. Um, 
I think the other side of it, well, I guess there's one other thing, but um, I think the other thing is they're starting to tell stories about that include people of color mm -hmm. more um, directly and because not because they have to, but because they're including people of color in the story making process. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm all for that. Me too. So lots of, it's, it's just including other voices and making them just as strong as before. You heard it here first so, folks. Writers get animated is pro diversity of authorship voice. <laughs> I don't think we've ever been against that. No, I don't think we have, but I just feel like we need to restate it for our new listeners and Jennifer Lee to hire us. Um, we are pro diversity of authorship. Yeah. I I just want to be in the room. I, just, I don't even want to be in charge of anything. I want to be a member of the story group where people just go, what do you think, Chris? And then I'll just say it. And they're like, great. And maybe if I'm also the guy that brings coffee, that's fine. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I just want to be in, I don't want to say this, but I just want to be in the room where it happens. Like, I just, that's that's it. I just want to be in the room where it happens. Well, if we know the McElroy brothers can con their way into voice acting for Trolls 2, maybe we can find a way to con our way into being just sitting in the story group room. Just like, yeah, when, when's the next meeting, guys? This is great. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Keep it. Um, I don't even want to per be the person that says keep it. Like, I don't even want that kind of power. You don't even say funny. You just I, want to say, ha, that's. <laughs> I don't want to cast judgment on anything. <laughs> I just want to say things. Anyway, did you have a favorite thing from the two things that we watched I for this episode? I think what we alluded to earlier, um, it's Bolt being hungry for the first time and saying, you're hungry, and Bolt saying, where is the antidote? What's interesting about that is John Travolta is so sincere in that performance. It's, it, it reads as a joke, but it doesn't read as false. <sighs> It's just so, the sincerity is just dripping. He just wants it to be off, over. Uh, it's just dripping out of John Travolta's voice. It's amazing. Um, my favorite thing, even though I love many moments from Frozen, and I talked about my favorite moment in Frozen, but my favorite thing is actually from Bolt. It's Rhino singing the theme music. Oh, yeah, it's a close second for me. Oh, it's just so... It's another one of those winking moments at the audience. Um, I, I just, it, it's totally in character that he'd be thinking about the Bolt theme music <laughs> as he's helping Bolt in a mission. Like that's, that that's in his head. It's like when I'm driving in rush hour traffic and I'm, you know, it's rough and I'm just like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 270 is the asteroid field theme music. 670, 670 my friend. 670. Wrong highway. It's been too long. <laughs> but it's 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 a very human thing. You have the theme song of the thing you love. And it, the only thing that would make it better is if I had Mark Hamill in the back and I was an Uber driver, like getting Mark Hamill to the airport. <laughs> 
Like, hey, Mark. How are you? Hang on! Punch it! And he'd be like, oh, not this guy. <laughs> Why do I keep getting this Uber driver? <laughs> Don't get cocky! <laughs> I'd watch that. And just, like, really apologize to Mark Hamill the whole time. <laughs> just like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Should we talk about homework time? Yes. For next time, we are doing our annual review of new animated television shows released in 2018. So watch every new animated TV show of 2018. <laughs> No qualifier. Just do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, watch around, see what's out there, see what's new, or do nothing. Just listen to us, give recommendations next time. We'll see how you and feel. Then, and then you can choose what to see yeah. after everything. Exactly. So, These send up residual yeah. value. People listen to them. For some reason, our 2016 one is still popular. People love 2016. Yeah, not, it, was a new, it was a simpler time. Not 2017, just 2016. <laughs> As always, we want to say thank you to our engineer, Nigel Coutinho. And thank you to Jacob Reed for our awesome theme music. You can find us on Twitter at WG Animated or Facebook, facebook.com slash WG Animated, where you can like us, read show notes, um, probably do some other stuff that's Facebooky, <laughs> all that good stuff. You can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review on iTunes that helps other people find this show if you enjoyed it. Let us know. We love to hear from you. Let us know. Let us know. Good night, everybody. Good night.